0: Hi, friends. Welcome. I'm glad you could join us. My guest today is Michael Green. Once I read his story, I couldn't wait to get him on. His story is compelling. He grew up in what he calls the white ghetto of the Baltimore area. His father was a career criminal. He spent about four years behind bars himself before completely turning his life around. Now he's running a highly profitable flipping business, flipping houses. He's done more than 1,100 flips in 10 years. But that's not all he does. He's got a coaching business. He helps people to use systems that he's created to generate millions and profits. Oh, and he's got his own show called The Flip Factor. So he's a busy man. I appreciate him coming on. First, I ask questions about his life in prison, dealing with cellmates, managing his sex drive while he was locked up, what he did in his first 72 hours of freedom. Then we get into why the time he spent locked up was an integral part of the success that he's having today, what he learned some really good books that he read, and just how he changed his mindset. It's it's really interesting. And now he's all about giving back and being of service to other people. So I'm excited to have him on. Let's bring him on. Hey, Mike. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm very excited to talk with you.
0: Your background, dude, is really interesting. I read where you went to prison for four years. Is
1: that right? I did as a teenager, Yes. I mean, both probably, obviously, because um I mean, the place I grew up, nobody makes money. Even I don't really get to hang out with any of my old friends because they're all broke. And, you know, it's kind of hard to have a conversation, you know, about them working for the man for 12 bucks and, you know, we making a ton of money. So I find that we don't really have a lot in common anymore. Plus, you know, where I grew up and I call it the hood, a lot of negativity. And, I, you know, part of evolving and becoming this better person that I've been striving to become is getting away from negativity. You know, it doesn't. Sometimes people call that selling out, but really, I think it was doing what was best for me and my family and trying to break that cycle of poverty. Where is this hood you speak of? Uh, It's called Brooklyn, Baltimore. So like Brooklyn, New York, uh, modeled after Brooklyn, New York, not anywhere close as nice, but it's it's called the White Ghetto is the nickname. So effectively, a lot of drug addicts, a lot of crime. Uh, It has systematically gotten worse over the last 30 years. Uh, my grandparents moved there a long time ago. It was more of like a lower, you know, working class neighborhood. And now it's just went downhill. It's literally went down in value over 30 years.
0: And that's where you're trying to flip houses?
1: That's where I flipped my first house, but could not continue flipping there. When we had the crash in 2009, you really couldn't flip there anymore because it's just pretty bad neighborhood. Yeah, I did own 30 rentals in the neighborhood and it was pretty solid for that but really not an area we flip in. So if you go about a mile or two so outside of Brooklyn, it's now Brooklyn Park, which is the county versus Baltimore City, better schools, lower taxes. And uh, yeah, ARVs are like 200 to 300,000. And uh, in Brooklyn, ARVs like 50 or 40. It's a very, very uh, low end. How did you end up in prison? Look, so it was a long, long history of me getting in trouble. a, so, you know, nine, I don't know, like nine, 10 years old, I was selling firecrackers in school. And I, I always had this dream to make money. I always really loved like the business side. I think for some level, my father always had a job, but loved talking about entrepreneurial stuff. He wasn't around a lot. And I think part of how I tried to gain his attention was, you know, coming up with all these little side hustles. And I came from none of those were very uh, legal or productive. So eventually, you know, I got in a lot of trouble. You know, I did some stuff when I was a teenager selling drugs, and uh, which everyone was doing in my neighborhood. And like everything, you get caught when you do that. And they gave me a five-year sentence. And that five-year sentence had a four-year mandatory. So about three years and 11 months I got out. And uh, the good news was it was about the perfect amount of time for me to make a major life change. Uh, I fully believe if I had only been arrested or in prison for a year, I would have not had an opportunity to really fully evolve and uh, changed the person that I was. I came out very scared straight, very like, okay, this is not where I want my life to be. This is prison isn't a great place for a white guy. Probably should have known that, but just not a great place for anyone who really wants more. And I got there just wanting more, right, Not and just not having a very good way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, So I decided that I would be way better working, right, and I started running the math because I've always been an analytical math guy, and I realized making a dollar a day in prison versus selling drugs... Uh, I think the net outcome was I could have worked at Walmart and made about the same outcome because, you know, it had not been in prison. So I kind of got real okay with uh, just working, you know, doing whatever and realizing that being free and having an opportunity to do some cool stuff and enjoy life was way more important than trying to be a, you know, successful entrepreneurial person at 15, 16 years old.
0: How did you get caught? Did you just get greedy?
1: (laughs) Basically, I mean I thought you're always gonna get caught. I mean, anytime you're you know, it's an unfair game, right? And I'm really big into game theory and when you really break down like dealing drugs or committing crime, you, you essentially you can win like fifty times in a row and then lose once and but then you lose. You're in prison for five, ten years. So, you know, it's never gonna be a productive way. It's not like business, right? We can fail all the time in business and get back up and do it again, tweak, make it better. Uh, you know, you don't have the ability to fail when you're a criminal and uh, you know, you end up getting Killed. You can go to prison. I mean, it's just very uh, hard life. It's not something I would ever recommend. Or, and I, I talk about it more to tell people it's not a road to go down. I don't want to ever try to make it sound like it's glamorous and it's the reason I am where I am today. It was shifting away from that is why I am where I am today. Right? It was completely disowning that past life and saying, you know what, no more of that. Like no, at at any level at all. Like I'm the guy doesn't run red lights now and uh, (laughs) super, super by the book because that's just my belief system. Now I've built like some high level character. I do what I say. I follow through with things and it's meaningful to me to be that person now. How'd you get caught? I think like normal stuff. Somebody snitches on you and then like, you know, they get caught and then they snitch on you. And then next thing you know, they're like kicking your door in and, you know, so that's how it happened. It always happens, right? Uh,
0: I don't know. (laughs) Were you able to pay for your own attorney or was one appointed for you?
1: No, I paid for my own. I did actually have money. I had like a Corvette when I was 16 years old. I actually lived on my own at 16, had my own apartment and everything. Uh, My mom couldn't really control me because I was just a big kid. And I was very entrepreneurial, very independent. Um, Some of the things she had taught me to be that way. When my mother's saving grace, she's a most beautiful person you'll ever meet, she, she would give her last dollar to help someone. You know, but just one of the things she did, and I think it's really helped me and got me back on track, was she taught me how to wash my own clothes, cook my own meals, take care of myself. Uh, I just was a kid that grew up quick because of where I was, you know, what I'd been through. 16, I was a little more mature than a 16-year-old in some ways, not in others.
0: So did the system treat you like an adult?
1: Yeah, I, went, I actually went as an adult. I did. Jesus.
0: I mean, you must have just yeah. hit that cutoff,
1: huh? I was 17, so they, you know, it's pretty easy for them to kind of just throw me in as an adult.
0: Did you have a cellmate?
1: I did, yeah. Multiple ones over the time I was there.
0: Did you form cliques? Like you said, it was hard to be a white guy. Did the white people kind of stick together?
1: Yeah, they do. It wasn't many of us, so we had to. It's one of those things. It's survival, right? Everything's survival. I mean, I... I learned a lot about life in prison. Uh, you know, I learned about how some people take kindness as weakness. And and I, I learned that there's a lot of things you have to be very aware of, your surroundings, how you come off of people, because in there it can be very dangerous. It could be your you know, your safety. You know, if you, you annoy someone, we don't always have to think about that in day-to-day life. And there you have to think about every little aspect of what you're doing, how you're doing it. Even down to me saying, here's a free piece of paper if someone asked me for it. You know, I had to learn. now you know, I would say this is the good news, but one of the things, my father was a career criminal and, you know, he got in trouble his whole life. And, and part of why, you know, I think prison probably was going to, was in my destiny was, you know, I think I was destined to be there. He'd been training me to be in prison my whole life. I mean, he had like every life lesson he taught me, was about essentially how to survive on the street, street smarts, how to make it in prison. So when I did get there, I had some training, I knew not to do certain things. And it was a So I was, you know, enough just to get by and be able to stay to myself, stay out of trouble, do my time and, you know, get into some productive things, read books and, you know, it it took a little self-reflection to, you know, break that cycle of who I thought I was and become who I was really meant to be.
0: Do you have any contact with any of the folks, like ex-cellmates or anything Do you keep in contact with any of them?
1: I really don't. Maybe it's part of my life I want to get away from and, you know, even in there, there's I was definitely a rare bird in there, you know, a guy who was like super positive And, you know, even though I was in this completely negative situation, there was just so much. I was so excited about the potential. And I read a book, They Can Grow Rich. A lot of people have read that book. Um, that was my first book I had ever read on self-development about anything or even knowing that like you can make money legally. You know, my whole world, my micro ecosystem in Brooklyn was like all i had ever seen was crime. Uh, if you didn't do crime or you weren't a criminal, you essentially worked at a very low paying job really hard you know, make 10 or 15 bucks an hour max. I mean, you know, you're never gonna really have much. You're just gonna scrape by. And, uh, and I never really seen anyone who were, was business savvy, right? There wasn't anyone who, you know, like the rich dad, right? Versus rich dad, poor dad, love that book also. But there's no rich dads around where we were. So there's no one really to look up to. So eventually, uh, you know, I just got in there and I, you know, I didn't really connect and stay in touch with anyone. I survived in there, stuck to myself uh, for the most part, and then just kind of did my own thing, man. And really started forming, a group of friends when I got out that were on a similar path to me.
0: Could you request books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Think and Grow Rich when you were locked up?
1: Uh, they had a library and a lot of those things were in there. So you could find, and I always read, love reading stuff like that. Right? I love psychology books, you know, motivational books. After I read my first one, I became somewhat addicted. I probably read about 20, 30 books over the time I was in there. Uh, I read a lot more now than I did then. But for for me, I hadn't read three or four books in my life. Uh, You know, spend a couple years reading 20, 30 books really intensely. Some of them I read multiple times and uh, just really start to fill my brain and my mind with things that I never learned through my environment. So I asked
0: listeners what question they would ask someone who had spent four years behind bars and they came back with some really good questions. One of them was, how did you manage your sex drive while you were locked up?
1: Well, I don't know. You know, there is no way to match it. So, there's no women in there. There's, you know, and if you're not gay, then you're in trouble. So, you know, it's just a lot of time with yourself, I guess. Yeah. So that was probably one of the biggest benefits of getting out, and one of the biggest reasons I didn't want to stay in there.
0: Well, I remember watching maybe it was like an MSNBC documentary, one of those locked up type shows, and one of the guys who was in there for life talks about how your sex drive pretty much goes away while yeah. you're in there. So did you see any guys go gay that weren't before?
1: Not a lot where I was. I know it's bigger in other prisons, but um, we had like one gay guy. And then like, I don't know, he didn't do very well. So he was gone pretty quick. So <laughs> I don't know if we had a very we had a homophobic area. It was like not a lot of gay guys where we were, right. or, or at least uh, openly, let's say, you know, I'm sure there was some in the closet, but no open gay guys.
0: All right. Next question came from a guy who was locked up for insider trading. In fact, he, he said that he was locked up for 23 and a half hours a day. Is that about how long you were locked up per day?
1: So initially, when you first get intaken and they're deciding where to put you, so I had about a four-month period where I was like 23 hours a day. And then from there, I went to a regular prison. And once you get to a regular prison, there's school, there's shop, there's ways to educate yourself. So you can be out of the cell quite a bit. You know, you end up having like a full-time job where you can get integrated, you know, socialize go to the gym, do things that are, you know, you start to get a routine and time starts to fly by. Uh, when you are put into that 23 hours a day, it is grueling. I mean, that was the roughest part of the time I did was I had a, like a four-month period before they actually sent me to real prison. And I sat there while they were waiting to choose where they were going to send me. And my lawyer was trying to get me into a youth program that was specialized for people who, even though I was charged as an adult, I was a youth program, saving grace. And I think, I, and I guess I didn't even really mention this, but um, then I went to a youth program and I had therapy two to three times a week where we had we had group sessions and we kind of talked about our feelings. You know, they called us out on our bull crap, you know, about me saying, oh, I sold drugs because I wanted to make money. You know, that's the easy answer, but really I sold drugs because my father was a drug addict and I wanted to connect with him. You know, I wanted him to like actually give me some, you know, some validation. And I look up to me and like spend. you know, he did. And we spent more time together when I got into his world. So when you realize the driving factor behind the bad things we do and our bad patterns, we can change them. But when I was using, you know, the surface level of like, oh, I want to make money. Well, there's a lot of ways to make money. It doesn't involve being, in, you know, at risk of your life and risk of your freedom. So um, that was actually one of the, I would say the luckiest things that happened to me, the fact that I was 17 and I was able to spend most of my time in what was considered a youth program. I was with other adults and everything, but we had our special thing where they were really trying to cut down recidivism, you know, where I don't have to go back and they wanted to really try to change us versus just putting us behind bars. And uh, and I took full advantage of all of it. I really loved it.
0: What's the role of the taxpayer as it pertains to recidivism? Like, do you think that those programs helped you enough to where you would be a happy taxpayer to help support those programs? to rehabilitate prisoners?
1: Well, I mean, because either way, right, I think if you look at long long term, I mean, investing in people not coming back to prison is actually cheaper than anything because we pay for them to be in prison and it costs like 30 some thousand bucks a year to house each prisoner. So if you really consider the fact that and most of these programs, by the way, aren't even paid by the state. They're actually usually volunteer things. You know, they're, they're charity things. And even the program I was in, um, that wasn't really funded by the state because the state really doesn't do a lot in Maryland, at least um, they don't have a lot of programs uh, those programs are more concerned citizens. So I think if we had more programs and we did focus on instead of penalizing people, which it is a penalty, you've done something wrong. But if we did spend time figuring out like how to help people and not come back as often, the recidivism rate is over 85% across the United States, which is pretty insane. I mean, if you go to prison, you're 85% likely to go back again. You know, that, that suggests, those numbers suggest that there's something that needs to be done differently. You know, not saying, you know, I'm, I've, I actually very much now, this is, uh, for me, I'm 43 years old. So we're talking about over 20 years ago, you know, 20 some years ago for me. But, uh, you know, and I, I take both sides because I can see it as a, you know, paying citizen right now and somebody who's been a productive member of society. And, uh, I just know that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in jail that need to be there. There's some goofballs in there that need to be there. And there's some people in there that, um, with the right environment could make me you know, go to the other side of the fence. But, end of the day, no matter what programs we have, there's still going to be a good portion of people who are just, oh, just aren't right, right? Just some people, I think Chris Rock or somebody said, some people are just crazy, right? There's just uh, no helping them. And that's true. It's very true. But I think it could be lower than 85%, and really, to answer your question. It could definitely be a lot lower than that.
0: Did they put you with the murderers and rapists?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus. What's yeah, the it was maximum.
0: What's the hardest drug you sold?
1: Uh, crack is what I sold. So that's, you know, it was at the time that was the thing in my neighborhood. And, uh, so it was a pretty hard drug at the time. What's your relationship like with your dad now? Uh, he's passed away, actually OD'd about uh, 10 years ago. So, um, when I got out, my relationship was, um, very judgmental you know, I wanted to heal that relationship and, you know, I had a lot of resentment, and a lot of things that caused me to be the person I was. And, um, now uh, so we spent a lot of time together and I, I had always managed boundaries with him because, you know, he was someone who would take advantage of kindness and, you know, have you driving them all around and doing all kind of crazy stuff. But, you know, we spent a lot of quality time together and he had a few little bouts that, uh, where he was trying to get clean and he was doing better and he got to know my brother and he helped me connect with, you know, he had a lot of different kids, by a lot of different women. And uh, we started connecting with them. Now my half brother, Pete, uh, he actually worked with me when I first got into real estate and he's still out there. He does demo now and uh, finds deals for me. So we've actually gotten a lot closer. And uh, so that's just, you know, good things come from it. So relationship was good. I mean, it was a lot better. It was more healthy when I got out.
0: I'm amazed at how many people mistake kindness for weakness. I deal with that all of the time. I didn't finish the question from my from my listener who is on Twitter as X inside trader. He said necessity is the mother of invention and that what they would do was they would tie strings to popsicle sticks so that they could change the channels on the television that was across the hall from their cells. <laughs> is there anything that you figured out how to do out of necessity or like a, just having a strong desire to do something where you became super creative?
1: Uh, well, I mean, so for me, they allowed me to have a guitar when I was in there. So I spent years playing, got better at it. And I haven't played as much. Once I found business, I found that to be a bigger passion. Uh, so I don't, I play randomly now, but for the whole time I was in there, I played learned a lot of songs, started singing, just had a great time like exploring that creative side of myself that I'd never uh, really explored that much as a kid. And that, and plus, you know, you learn all the goofy things like how to make a, you know, how to heat up a noodle with something they call a donut. It's basically toilet paper that you put on your metal toilet seat. and You can set it on fire and it'll heat a bowl of noodles up and, you know, you can do all kind of cool stuff. I mean, yeah, you're right. Very creative in there. I mean, make tattoo guns out of like a, a tape player and a, a pen. I mean, you just see all kind of neat stuff. You're right. I mean, people could... You you, I think everyone's always said this, if, if a lot of criminals could use their resourcefulness that they use to be criminals in a productive way, they, they couldn't be stopped. Because it takes a lot of resourcefulness to figure out how to be a criminal. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, people do this because they're stupid. Actually, they're just, you know, often just, they're somewhat geniuses. They just are using it in the complete wrong way.
0: I believe that. I mean, that's what street smarts are, Right. As opposed to being able to read something in a book and then recite it or regurgitate it. Yeah, there's a different type of intelligence out there. I know you're big on emotional intelligence, right? Is that where your uh, desire to learn more about emotional intelligence started in those years?
1: hundred percent. I mean, I would say before that, I almost had no understanding or interest or anything. And, and part of this was getting obviously out of my teens and getting into my early 20s. You know, I think harmonically as a teenager, you kind of have a lot of angst and you got a lot of stuff going on. And uh, so a couple of things were happening. I was actually in this environment of learning kind of about myself, learning about my emotional intelligence. Uh, and a lot of my initial learning was about me and emotional intelligence is actually more about others and yourself to your own patterns and how you affect others. So that was kind of my next journey in my early 30s. I started doing more emotional intelligence. I think originally it was uh, emotional intelligence to the piece of just me transforming into the person I need to be. and So it was very much inward focused. When you got out of prison, how did you spend your first 72 hours? Eating. You know, going to eat. <laughs> really being with family. My mom and stepfather at the time, my grandfather, grandmother, uncle, all the people that are really close. We have a very small family and um, most of them have passed away now, 20 years later. And it's just me, my mom, my uncle, who all work in my business with me. And uh, so it's just being with them, you know, I actually getting to see them, going to eat some real food. That was my first 72 hours.
0: So you talked about resourcefulness, and I thought that that might be a good segue into what it is you're doing now. You've talked about on your podcast, which is called The Flip Factor. Yes. You said that you don't necessarily need resources to get started in flipping houses, but you need to be resourceful. Can you talk about what you mean? Because I know a lot of people are hesitant to get into flipping because they think it takes a lot of money, and you advocate Mm. for the fact that it does not. So can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, it takes one of two things. And honestly, I think of the two things, one's more important. It takes either money or it takes knowledge and resourcefulness. You know, your ability to get things done. And so that way you actually have value. Um, for me, I think if you only had money and just jumped into investing, you probably make a lot of mistakes. You just wouldn't really know what to do. So I think people who have to start because they don't have money um, naturally are more resourceful, which I find to be the number one thing that makes it, it's, it's number one indicator of success is people who run into walls, which we all do. This business changes every couple of years and what's working best. You know, investing in general is just changing all the time. And if you don't have the ability to kind of step back analyze, you know, tweak and move forward, keep improving, then you literally aren't going to be a long-term investor. You're going to struggle eventually. So resourcefulness for me, I think it always starts with, like as someone, most people don't have a hundred to $200,000 to invest in a property. So most people are going to come without the money. You know, you can get hard money lenders. You can get private people. Today, you can get gap funding. You know, a couple of my students actually just went and got like 50K just based on their credit. So, I mean, and that's enough to get started to do your first flip. Now, most of the people I work with and myself also are really just using flipping as a tool, right? Flipping as a tool to make additional income so they can start building rentals and creating that freedom. And just start, you know, and they do it sometimes with a job or sometimes they do it with the intention of quitting their job as soon as they can. So resourcefulness though, like every day you need it, right? You have to be able to look at problems, break them down, solve them, and step by step just, you know, consistently work through them. Versus, you know, the the other way, which would be the victim thinking is that uh, well, there's not enough deals. You know, the industry's too competitive. Uh, well, this thing doesn't work. I mean, i found that almost anything works if you apply yourself and you're resourceful about it. So really you won't hear me say anything bad about much because it's just context, right? In certain contexts. Uh, everything works, right? I mean, really anything that anyone else has ever made work, generally can be also made to work for you.
0: Yeah, and now you're in a situation where you're building what you call generational wealth and you're coaching others to do the same thing. How did you get here? Can you kind of walk me through the last 15 years after prison, your transition into what you're doing now?
1: So right off the bat, I had to get a job, and uh, I've never been a job guy. I'm a bad employee. I'm kind of the worst employee ever because I'm so entrepreneurial. I wanna write, you know, I'm a, a high D, if you understand, like disc, and you know, I like to, I'm a driver. So I want to run things. I want to lead, and it doesn't work well when you work for people. Yeah, you know, they they like it but hate it at the same time because uh, you know, I, I, 21 is when I got out of prison. They're not going to put me in a leadership position just like do the work and be quiet. And and I, and I did for a while. I actually got into hardwood flooring, which is my stepfather. Uh, he ended up giving me a job and uh, which is pretty awesome because I think constructions is a really wide open industry in general. It's a great place to make money these days because less people want to do it. And uh, I got into that and uh, I was making like 300 bucks a week working for him, but I was learning a skill and this is so big. And And I had seen my uncle over the years do carpet and I've seen this, my stepfather who was not really the most like a uh, savvy guy, but make really good money doing this thing of hardwood flooring. So I was working and doing it knowing that I could kind of start my own thing eventually. So it happened happen about 18 months later, my step, father's side, he wanted to become a car mechanic, even though he was making all this money at hardwood and he wanted to go do something he really didn't even know how to do, which was all part of like his bad life choices for a long time. And he essentially gave me the opportunity to go on my own as a subcontract. So now I'm like 22, 23 years old, and kind of my first real business. You know, I wasn't totally. You know, I had to get my own van, tools, show up every day, do the work, and and I got thrown into the mix, and that was like the big start of me being my own entrepreneurial person. If I worked really hard, I made more money. You know, it was the first time where I could actually get paid according to my level of work. And if I was more efficient, I made more money because I got paid per square foot of flooring that I laid. So I could start building systems and more efficient, you know, processes that would allow me to go on instead of doing 200 foot in a day, do 400 foot in a day. You know, I'd make double the money. And uh, so I started doing all that. And about three to four years later, I was making well over like 100K a year. Uh, it was quite a while ago, so it was decent, really good money, actually, for me. I was kind of, like, rich. About your mid-20s, you yeah. you're
0: making six figures? Did you invest in save and invest any of it?
1: Oh, I did what everyone from my neighborhood does. I invested it in dirt bikes. Uh, every, the worst things, right, If they don't buy things that are depreciating assets. I've effectively, in my 20s, bought every depreciating asset that existed. And literally, by the time I was 30, I make an over a hundred K a year. The only thing I'd done right was bought a house and fix it up. And, you know, kind of did a fixer upper, which was just for myself to live in, that was the only thing I did right period that gave me any net worth. Uh, but beyond that, I bought cars and boats and dirt bikes and just every stupid thing, barely ever even used them, just bought them. And like, Oh my God, I can. Right. It was like one of those crazy things and uh, no financial education at all. And by the time I was 30, I was about a hundred, a K in debt, credit cards, general debt, and, you know, I'm still making good money. What happened was eventually I started my own thing where I wasn't a subcontractor and I went from being the sub to the GC because it seemed like I would make more money. And I did make more money per square foot, but I didn't understand business. And I was costing, I had to have a storefront, I had to market, I had to have a sales team now, which was me. So I ended up working double the hours doing estimates. And my pay went from about 110 a year down to about 85 problem was I was still spending 110. So at like four years of that is how I racked up a lot of debt. I didn't adjust my lifestyle. And I, you know, it was, was my first big push into being a true business person, but just knew nothing about business. But knew no, I thought I could do the work. And I think most people make this uh, assumption that if you're good at the work, that's all it takes. Like if you, you know, I think the e-myth talks about this a lot, like if you're a great baker of cakes, then, you know, also you'll be a great, you'll, person to run a business, but not usually. Uh, Well, I was great at hardwood flooring, but I knew nothing about business. So eventually, uh, probably the biggest, I would say, crossroad in my life at 31, I was doing flooring for this guy who was flipping a house. And I'm completely addicted to flipping houses. And, uh, and this guy eventually says, hey, man, I, I learned how to do it from this other guy, right? Back in the day, you know, the free event you go to. And uh, he was like the only guy doing that, by the way, 11 years ago. There's like no one doing that today. It's like every weekend there's one. But uh, he was kind of one of the first people doing that. So I went to his event. Uh, I had been trying to do flips and thinking about it for years. He kind of clarified everything. I ended up paying him 15 grand to, to coach me, which, by the way, I'm k in debt. So I don't even have 15 grand. He showed me how to call my five credit cards and get them to extend my limits, which was ended up being about 7,500 bucks. And then he took a payment plan for the rest.
0: Did you pay him monthly or did you pay him up front 15 grand?
1: I gave him, so I maxed out five credit cards. I extended my limits, which gave him 7,500 bucks down roughly. And then I did a payment plan for a couple hundred bucks a month for the rest. That's what we ended up working out.
0: Wow. Because you and I are both now coaches and I charge way less than that.
1: I don't know about you only game in town by the way at the time. So, uh, yeah, it was either him or you never follow the dream. And it was a year of working with him. And I will say that for what he taught me and shared with me and the interaction we had, uh, it was a good investment at the time. And obviously there's more, there's a lot of people out there coaching now. And also the internet allows us to meet each other. So obviously people could coach with you and not even be in your neighborhood. And uh, so the internet opens the world up for us right now. I was in Baltimore and this guy just happened to be the only guy I knew. There really was literally no one else teaching at that time, like locally at least. You touched on something I think is important,
0: which is getting a broad education and reading many different books. Because you said earlier that you had read Think and Grow Rich maybe 20 years ago, which helps you with mindset. You didn't have the financial education So had you read Rich Dad Poor Dad, you maybe wouldn't have made the mistakes between reading those two books. And then once you get into becoming a great worker, you mentioned the e-myth, which is about you become a great baker, and then you think you can start your own baking business, but what you essentially do is buy yourself a job. So it just speaks to the importance of getting a wide range of education and reading as much as possible. So that you make sure that you preempt the sort of bad decisions that could get you buying depreciating assets and spending one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year when you're only making eighty five thousand. Mm-hmm. So now you're doing flips, and I want to ask if you're a fan of Dave Ramsey because Dave Ramsey says that flipping is for losers. Do you agree with
1: him? Mm-hmm. No, I don't, obviously not because I've made millions of dollars flipping. So I can't agree with that one thing. I'm a huge fan of Dave Ramsey. I love everything he speaks of. And honestly, I don't, I, I you know, I've read a lot about him saying flipping sucks because, of course, I'm interested. And, and I think what he's saying, and I think anytime anyone says anything, there's context to it, right? In the context that he speaks of it sucking, I completely agree. He basically says that if you don't really know what you're doing, it's completely risky, which is a very, very true statement. Like you can't just flip a house. You know, there's so many things you have to learn. You have to learn to negotiate. You'll have to drive costs down. You gotta learn construction. You need to learn a lot about being a realtor. You can't just hire a realtor and hope they're going to do the right things you got to be able to do like a lot of stuff. So house flipping is complex for that reason. Now there's simple ways to do most of these things that, you know, when I say simple ways, simple ways that cost me 10 years and hundreds of thousands of hours to learn, but we eventually get systems that make it, you know, there's so much of a great flow of information right now. So Dave Ramsey, I'm assuming if he would see, you know, someone who has a special talent at it has a really good system for doing it that minimizes risk. And, you know, it's completely, I couldn't imagine he would disagree with it. I think he's obviously speaking to the average American who thinks they can flip a house based on a show they seen on TV, have no understanding of construction, no understanding of math and, you know, how to analyze and buy deals and then think that they would be successful at that. And I agree with him that it would be for suckers at that point. But I don't know when it ever would not make sense when you can buy deals that have, baked in profit and I have a complete system to control costs. It just doesn't really, for me, I, you know, I, I'm assuming, I don't think Dave could argue with that, but, and I doubt he would, but well, I don't know him. So I we'll, won't we'll get a chance maybe one day to ask him.
0: Well, you could call his show. If you're debt free, yeah. he would love to hear from you so that you could scream. <laughs> Flipping attracts a lot of suckers. And mm-hmm. I imagine it's because rather than the Dave Ramsey route, which seems to be more, slow go and long-term thinking people see a house that could be purchased for a hundred thousand and the ARV which means after rehab value is let's say 180 and they think wow I just have to put $40,000 worth of work that's the easiest 40 grand in profit I've ever seen I mean why would I not do that why doesn't everybody do that most people either lose money or break even on their first deal do you have any, any tips or tricks to make flipping as easy as possible? I mean, it seems to me the biggest impediment to it being fun and easy would be contractors and negotiating. I mean, I've been through a lot of contractors myself. They're not punctual, and, you know, it's, it can be a real pain in the ass. So do you have any secrets that you can share that would get people... To, on the right track to where they can be making millions of dollars like you're doing?
1: I do. And obviously, and this is what I've kind of come up with over the years is there's really three profit centers in flipping. Obviously, everyone knows about the first one, which is buying the house at a deep deep discount, analyzing it correctly. Because you you hear it said all the time, you make your money when you buy. I don't disagree with that. But I've seen myself included and other people over the years buy amazing deals and then make a ton of mistakes that actually take a good deal that would have made 30 or 35K and only makes 10K because of making a lot of mistakes. And it tends to usually come in when it becomes construction time. Uh, the whole construction industry in general is not regulated. It's not standardized by any level. So you can get an estimate for 5K to waterproof a basement or 35K. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of what you're willing to pay. And person at 35K will fully be like, there's nobody out there to do it less than 35K. They'll fully believe that. And uh, and you know so you have to know your stuff. So big tip would be obviously understanding acquisitions, really dialing in and knowing exactly what the ARV is, the after repair value. Not asking a realtor because one of the first big losses I had as a realtor told me it was three twenty five, and next thing you know, she made a mistake and it was actually two fifty, and cost me. in loss on my fifth deal I did. She didn't do it. It wasn't uh, intentional, obviously, but she's human. She makes mistakes. Um, The problem is, I think when you ask someone who is not an investor, um, because realtors have the title of realtor, I think one of the big misconceptions is, is that they actually know anything about investing. And that they really know anything or they can protect you in any way at all. Often the biggest reason that I've lost money and I've seen others lose money is believing that a realtor an appraiser can be the person who makes these big financial decisions. It's kind of like a stockbroker saying, hey, let me manage your money and put it in these stocks. You know, they're managing commissions and so are realtors, right? Their focus is commissions, not always your safety and your ability to make money. So, I believe if you're going to do something as risky as flipping a house and you're going to, you know, invest a big, large sum of money, that you should understand the market yourself. You should be able to look at comparables. doesn't mean you don't have a realtor assist you or help you with that process, but at the end of the day, you need to be the final decision maker. You don't want to lean on the realtor to make these big financial decisions. The same thing comes true in the second profit center when hiring GCs. A lot of times people know nothing about construction. Yeah.
0: You said something about realtors that I think is interesting because most people, I think, would go to realtors first. And it's important to understand how incentives are aligned because you're right. They they do get paid from commission. Uh, realtors don't get a regular paycheck. And so they rely on being paid as a percentage of the sale price of a home, which is if they're trying to get a client, that might be the reason that they tell you that a home is going to sell at 325 If the next realtor tells them that, that it's going to sell at $300, you are going to choose the one who tells you that they can get you more money. But as we've established, there's no recourse if they don't get you the 325 and they end up selling it for 290
1: uh, but it's actually a big part of their business, right? It's a big part of how they get new listings.
0: Well, it can be, but I don't. I don't think that we should paint such a broad brush. I mean, the same thing could be applied to insurance salespeople, car salespeople, lawyers, attorneys, doctors. It doesn't matter the profession. There's going to be unscrupulous people in all of these professions, and so I think it's incumbent on the consumer or the client to do their homework. Um, interview different realtors, make sure they're with someone who is looking out for their best interest because the realtor designation of which I have one, um, you are obligated to follow a code of ethics and be a fiduciary for your client, which means put your client interest above your own. Mm-hmm. And if you run into an, a realtor who is not doing that, you need to fire them on the spot. So just a heads up to the public who is considering using a realtor. And most people do if they're going to do a flip. And it's a great resource for information. I mean, a good realtor, if they're a good professional, is going to save you more money than they cost you. That almost to me defines professional. So I wouldn't rule them out completely. Just Be aware of this stuff, but this is why we do these sorts of shows to educate people. So I appreciate you mentioning it, and I wanted to follow up and and add my two cents there. So understanding how incentives are aligned and do your homework, interview them, learn which questions to ask to make sure that they have your own interests, even above their own, because what you want is for them to do such a good job for you that you can then refer them to their friends and to your friends and family. And if you can convince them that that's what you're going to do, then they have every reason to act in your best interest. So you want to surround yourself with the sort of people who think long term and want to build relationships just like you do.
1: Yeah, I agree with you completely. And my experience has been is that most realtors are not malicious, right? They're not trying to take advantage of you. I've, can't, you know, that's a very rare exception where they're just legitimately making logical decisions that rip you off. Most of the time, it's through ignorance or it's through a lack of understanding of how investors work. It's through running everything through their realtor filter, which is retail, right? They're not thinking like an investor. And it's very uncommon to find realtors, who actually think like an investor because most realtors are high eyes, which is, you know, social butterflies, and social butterflies are not known for detail. They're known for thinking more grandiose and seeing big picture and being more creative. And so they see comps, they tend to naturally, and knowing they want a deal to get done, they want to get a deal for their client, they tend to lean towards the higher end of the comps. And often they're just getting it wrong because they're not taking objective view of both sides and then you know doing what I call weighted risk management. And I have to do this myself, by the way. So this is a very interesting kind of dialogue about this. I find that if I put myself in the wrong environment, I actually make some of the same mistakes that realtors make. So I'm really big on controlling the environment around myself, not allowing people like a realtor or anyone to tell me like, Hey Mike, but look at these comps. I'm like, no, I need to see them all. I need the whole picture because if I focus too much on certain comps, I'm going to, I'm going to start to make bad choices and I'm not going to make a good prediction of what the house will sell for. And even like some of my losses that I've had within the last couple of years have been when I put myself in a very uh, unfavorable environment.
0: Yeah, I like what you said there. So you want to fall in love with the numbers and not the deal, but you need to make sure that you're looking at all the numbers, (laughs) right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So how do you think about cost when you're approaching a flip?
1: So I'm always uh, back end. So the third profit multiplier that I believe in, it's construction. And the third one is on the back end. Uh, Our whole process has been crushing it for us right now is taking the properties, really doing a great job of designing them, laying them out, making sure we're a step better than everyone else in the neighborhood, just a little bit better. Often that doesn't even require money. It just requires a little more thoughtfulness, you know, of how we're going to lay it out. But then we always want to price on the aggressive side because what's been working really well for us is if we're, when I say aggressive, if we think a house is worth two fifty, putting it out even at two forty five nine is aggressive. Versus a lot of people are trying to go two fifty nine nine or two sixty nine nine. And uh, what we've seen happen when you go higher as you sit, no one buys because people are very intuitive. The market knows like your house will literally not sell, just being ten to twenty K overpriced. As soon as you make sure it's either priced well or five K under, what happens is you start creating these really competitive environments uh, where you'll get more money than even often the property is worth because we are in a very competitive market. So if you really think about game theory, it's tougher to buy properties, but it's much easier to sell them for more money than you ever expected. So we're finding where we're paying five to 10K more on the front side, we're, we're finding that to be very beneficial because on the back end, we're often selling for 10 to 20K more through creating almost like an auction type environment where we get, they own a house within seven days. The common scenario that we call selling with multiple offers is what we're always shooting for is five to seven offers in like a seven-day period. And then we have everyone kind of bidding against each other. We're doing highest and best multiple times. Eventually, we'll have one person who rises up, a winner, right? Someone who's like, I'm going to win at all costs. And they're pulling money out of their shoe from between the mattress and they're bringing their best offer. And that often if we're at 245.9 can be as much as 10, 20. I've seen as high as 50K over list before. And uh, within like the last couple months, we this last year was the best year I've had in flipping and I did the least amount of properties because I was actually optimizing each property and getting that back end money and really selling my houses for the most. So that's that's a profit center. It's a huge one. It's one of the bigger opportunities we have right now.
0: I've had the conversation with sellers so many times about the importance of pricing your home precisely. There's no better situation to be in than a competing offer situation where you're asking for the highest and best price. So many sellers get emotional. They think their home is worth more than what it really is because it's theirs. So they have this emotional investment. And other times they just want to see if there's a sucker out there. And so they'll list their house or 20k more than it's worth and you're absolutely right the buyer is intuitive and starts to question why has it been on the market so long well they didn't price it right they got greedy they tried to get too much money so if you you'll be much better off if you price your home about where its market value is everybody has access to the same data so get a good realtor if if you're going the realtor route to negotiate on your behalf to make sure that they're getting every dollar that they possibly can for you. But understand that you're working within a range because we all have access to the same data. So I I like what you said there. And another thing that I will say is when you're negotiating a real estate deal, please get on the phone with people. Stop trying to do it all by email. You can sense so much from a conversation with someone. Mike, I've got to know you just as in preparation for this podcast. If you called me tomorrow and asked me for a favor, how much more likely am I able to do it for you than if you and I had only emailed with each other? Right. I can see your face right now. I like you. We get along great. You know, it's it's the it's the building relationships that's going to serve you the best, not only in the short term, but in the long run. So get on the goddamn phone. I don't know why that's so hard for people, but um, I strongly encourage it.
1: Everybody wants to do tech, right? Everybody wants to be like hands off. And I will tell you that I will resonate and kind of feedback that that's big part of my getting way more money than I think the houses are worth is I get on the phone when I do multiple offers and I go back and ask for highest and best. That's a phone call, never an email. So the only job that I do as a realtor, because my mom actually does a lot of the heavy lifting is she doesn't like the negotiation piece. So about an hour a week, I got to do five you know, a couple three to five, five minute calls saying, Hey, you know, thank you for your offer. You know, we really appreciate it. We're in highest and best. And, you know, I really love to learn more about your client. Tell me anything that's important. And essentially what I'm doing is qualifying them because as you qualify someone, it puts them in the position of fighting to be in the deal and I'm helping putting them the right emotional mindset to win because most of the time people don't care if they pay 10 more K for a house. It's pretty meaningless in the grand scheme of things. You know, if you really want a home, it means like you'll pay an extra 10 bucks a month or 15 bucks, it's nothing. But it could be the difference in them not riding around looking for houses for the next three months and being disappointed, their family getting into the place they want to be in. So I'm always helping by getting on the phone and helping them win, helping them get what they want. And, uh, and you're right, I get a great opportunity to see if they're a serious buyer or not. If it's someone who's kind of has like, I'll do it, but only if, if you kind of bend over. Well, we're in, a, we're in a seller's market right now. So I want to make sure I have serious buyers buying the house that I go under contract with someone who's very likely to get the settlement.
0: I think one of the keys to being successful in both business and investing is figuring out how to make the highest and best use of your time. And one of the things that, I see bounced around on Twitter and other places is the importance of being willing to have uncomfortable conversations. And it sounds like you're willing to do that. And that's a large reason why you're successful. If you can get someone on the phone, I say this a lot. Yeses and nos are good. Maybes are bad. Don't get stuck in maybe land. You can get them on the phone. You're much more likely to get to a yes or no quickly. And that saves you so much time. And in business, time is money.
1: No, I, I mean, I, I 100% agree everything you said, like completely. Very good advice. I love the
0: story of the young guy that came to work for you for no pay. I was listening to one of your podcast episodes. Is it Delante? Is that his name?
1: Yeah, Delante. Can you tell
0: me his story,
1: please? Delonte's first of all, just one of the most awesome human beings I've ever met. And I love his story and I love everything about him because I've actually learned more about my finances and Dave Ramsey through being around Delante. He's a natural Dave Ramsey guy. Very good at saving money. He lives on almost nothing, buys no depreciating assets. Uh, just a role model. 20, 25 years old. Amazing guy. Um, he went to college, went to a really good college in Maryland, got a full scholarship in uh, computer science. Was doing it for about a year. Didn't hated it, obviously. Thought it'd be great, and but did not like it all. And had been thinking about getting in real estate. And I put an ad out uh, on one of the local groups saying, I was looking for a video editor and, you know, it's an internship and, you know, they'd work for free or a little bit of pay, you know, a couple of bucks just for their gas and stuff. And I thought they responded said, Hey, uh," everyone else was like, I want to, I got to make 10 bucks an hour. I can't do it or something. He's like, Hey, I don't want to get paid anything. I just want to learn from you. And that was the first reason I knew I loved this guy. Um, And then for like six months, me and him did videos. If you go back to my Facebook page and you see like the 20 videos we had on there, Delonte and I did those. And, uh, you know, we both, he didn't really tell me, I'm not a great video editor, but I'll learn and and I'll work hard. And I was like, fantastic. So there was times me and him were on the phone 12 o'clock at night for free, right? For free. Uh, Eventually he decided he was going to quit his job and get a different job. And I said, hey, would you consider working with me? And really diving in, he's like, you know, I dreamed about you asking that, but I didn't think it would be possible. And he's like, so he ended up deciding to work for me for 500 bucks a week. Now he was making 60K a year. So it's a big cut. But he's like, I can afford to do so. I live with my parents. And I was like, well, by the way, I have like a basement apartment you could have as part of that 500 bucks a week. And uh, you could just live there for free. And he's like, I have no debt, so I can totally do this. So he came to work for me for 500 bucks a week um, at start and then, you know, made almost no money and he lived fine. Like he totally created this ability because he wasn't dragged down by debt. He had seen all of his friends buy cars, houses and all this and, you know, just locked herself into like a position where they had to go to work and they couldn't lose their job because they wouldn't be able to pay their bills. He had no bills. He he had a car paid off that he bought for 2000 bucks. And no credit card debt, no anything. He could live on like literally 15, 20 grand a year easily. So he got to do some deals, made some money, came a time uh, about two years in our relationship where he did an emotional intelligence course with me called choice center. And me and him uh, graduated that. And what he discovered in that was that he wanted to go back to acting. He'd always loved it. And his parents had told him, you know, obviously you can't make money at that. So, you know, go, to, go to school. And he listened to him, very traditional family from Jamaica. And uh, so he did that. And But he was like, Mike, I really want to do this. And he at one point thought he might not be able to work for me and do it. And, And what we discovered in our emotional intelligence training is that uh, it's never either or. Right, we have to find solutions to do both. So we found a way that he went part time, just worked for the coaching business because he'd do a lot of enrollment calls with new clients and helping them out, and you know, just an assistant coach. And uh, he did that while he was on the bus going to New York, uh, doing interviews and you know, doing a bunch of auditions. I mean, stuff. And um, you know, he got a couple weird commercials for fifty bucks, 100 bucks a hundred bucks here, a couple parts, nothing big. And uh, a year into doing that, he gets this offer to be in an HBO show. Uh, like huge, a really huge role. I mean, like a recurring role. He's going to probably be doing it for two years, getting paid a bunch of money per episode and, uh, and they're paying for him to move to LA and he just left a couple weeks ago. So I mean, he's like my best friend and I miss him. And uh, I was so happy. I mean, I've never been happy to have someone leave my business, but, um, felt no, like, Oh crap, who's going to do his job? Like, you no, know, who cares? In a week, we had someone else doing this job, and it was no big deal from that point. I just missed my friend, but he's now got this opportunity. Uh, it's a Lakers show about the Lakers, and now uh, he's playing Michael Cooper. and uh, So he's one of the stars of the show, man, and hes uh, I think he's going to be on for two years. It's already been picked up. He did a pilot, and the pilot, they loved it, and they picked it up. And he's in L.A. living his dream now, man, because he was willing to make all those sacrifices, not get in debt. None of this would have been possible if he would have bought a new car, have, you know, try to get an apartment. You know, would have been too good to live in someone's basement or you know, or too good to work for 500 bucks a week or too good to work for free. See, all those good choices led to this opportunity that I think is going to be big for him. I mean, he's just a good guy. People all love him. Everyone that ever meets him loves him. So I know like, as he gets to be on the show, they're going to love him and he's going to do great.
0: I love that story. And it's a testament, I think, to why the minimum wage is bullshit, because America is a ladder to climb. And the important thing is to get on the goddamn ladder. So it doesn't matter if it's the bottom rung implied in the American dream is that there is a ladder, figure out a way to get on it and start climbing. And that's what Delante did. And it sounded like he was a good steward of his money. And somehow, amazingly, God sees to it that you get more of it when you're a good steward of it. So yeah. I love that. Can, can you give me an idea of how much money he's going to be making out there? It's a lot.
1: I mean, he's making like 50, 60K k a year. He's probably going to be making like seven times that or something, and it's way more than he needs. So he's already figuring out what he's going to do to invest, buy rentals, whatever he's going to do. Uh, he's thinking through it now, and he obviously knows he can talk to me. You know, it's one thing is we've connected as friends for life now, and the time we spent together. You know, I just love. I poured so much in him. We would spend all, all day, every day together. And just, you know, how many life lessons he learned from me, other people I was around. He got coaching. I paid like 40, 50K a year to be. And, you know, always when I would do that, I'd be like, like, I have to have my assistant come too. And it would be like, okay. And the next thing you know, he's in the mastermind with all these high-level flippers. And, and uh, so he got to really see some cool stuff, man. And uh, he was smart enough to see that, like, he got in the door by not being greedy, by not being so short-sighted. And, uh, and creating a life of freedom that, you know, so uh, he's a, uh, oh man, he, I'm pumped for him. I think he's, I don't think he's ever going to, like, he's going to be good for him. And, I, and none of this could have happened if he would have thought like I thought when I was his age.
0: And, well, good on you, man, because I always talk about the importance of surrounding yourself with badasses. And it sounds like he did that. And what I mean by badasses is, is people who are going to encourage and inspire you and help you in your development And be happy for you when you succeed. And a lot of us don't have those type of people around us. But through developing himself, he was able to attract the kind of person who wanted to help him, first offering value to you at no cost, which is awesome. But he gained so much more in the process. And the fact that you are happy for him to move on from you says a lot about you. Because there are a lot of managers in this world that don't want their best employees to be promoted up to their level or beyond their level. So um, it's, it's an insecurity and it's a problem nowadays. So that's uh, uh, impressive, man. Good for you. I, I love that story. I'm going to ask some fun, quick questions before we wrap up. Is that cool? Yeah. What's the biggest misconception of flippers?
1: Oh, uh, that's easy. Right. And it doesn't require hard work. It's like get rich quick.
0: At what age do you think you will be a multimillionaire?
1: Uh. We'll find out. I'm hoping in the next 10 years, I have a strong plan to kind of get super cheap. I'm selling my vehicles, going to a Honda Civic and uh, I'm making some big changes right now. I have a nice waterfront property. It's a ton of equity and the market's really high right now. So I'm selling that off. Uh, I'm getting cash rich right now. I'm on a cash grab. I'm trying to so that when rentals go back on sale in a couple of years, which they will inherently, I want to be able to buy them up like crazy. Do you own any individual stocks or index funds? No, no stocks because obviously with my ability in real estate, there's really not any, I just don't know stocks well and I don't think they would perform as well as I can get a rental to perform or a flip.
0: Invest in what you know. There you go. What's your biggest loss?
1: I... Biggest loss. I mean, on a deal, you know, thirty K is the biggest loss. And then but in life, I would say in not being focused has been hundreds of thousands of dollars of losses over the years. You know, not having a clear, like, objective of what I'm gonna accomplish and not focusing on my money has caused me never to have it. I mean, i I know how to make it but knowing how to keep it is a whole different story. And the time I spent with Delante, the big lesson I learned from him is learn how to keep it. You don't need a lot of it. You don't have to make half a million dollars a year to be rich or wealthy. You just have to make more than you spend. And he, he, you know, he'd he, know make 50, 60K a year. He always had 20, 30K in the bank. He never hurting for money, always in a great position. And just making 50, 60K a year because he had the ability to, to spend less than he makes. And I don't think many of us do that. That's a big, big piece of advice I can give to anyone is spend less than you make.
0: Resist the temptation to inflate our lifestyle, especially since we now have so much data to show us that that's not what increases our happiness. And that's that's what matters, right? A joy-filled life full of gratitude. You don't need a, a multi-million dollar house to, to get there. So the best thing that money can buy is freedom. And I love that you learned that from somebody who was almost 20 years younger than you. Having friends of various ages. A lot of times in corporate America, you get these big egos and there is no way that somebody who is 38 years old thinks that they can learn anything from somebody who is 26 years old. But that's BS. So have an open mind, maintain a beginner's mindset. That's one of the reasons I think you're killing it.
1: Yeah, thank you. I agree completely.
0: What would you say to someone who is 31 years old and feels like they haven't yet?
1: Made it. Sometimes I wonder for many years, the reason I got so successful in house slip and got to a point where I was doing 150 a year is because as I was at 50 a year, I felt like I hadn't made it. When I got to 100, I felt like I hadn't made it. And what I realized was is I just really never had clarity on like what made it is or even what is that? Like getting real clear about like what success is because it's so different. I think we often just leave an open checkbook to that. Like, you know, like we'd have to have 300 million to be successful. And then, you know, once you have 300 million, then the people that are billionaires are looking down on you. So there's always this ability to feel like you haven't made it. So if you're 31, first of all, figure out what made it or success really is. And then just start to break down a plan of like how you're going to get there. What are you going to sacrifice that that you're currently is causing you not to be there? Uh, Because for Delonte, and I love using him as an example, made it was making 60K a year and spending half of that and being able to travel with me and meet awesome people and be able to pursue his acting career. And having that for him, he would have never told you he hadn't made it and, you know, it didn't require making a lot of money.
0: Yeah, and think of all the freedom and options that he's created for himself. So a couple of years from now, he might be offered a job in Seattle that pays a half million dollars a year, and he can just be like, nah, nah, that doesn't work for me because he's financially free, right? His passive income at that point, I'm sure, will exceed his expenses because he's he's extended so far the gap between his income and expenses, especially after working in Hollywood. Next question, if someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it?
1: I mean, I'd put it in the bank, obviously, and just keep investing it. In. I wouldn't, I do think it would change in my life. I wouldn't go get a car or anything. Good news, is I got a lot of that out of my system in my twenties. Uh, I literally just, you know, put my, make my bankroll bigger. I mean, one key indicator of success I've seen in, in investing in general, uh, in house flipping specifically, since it is cash intense, is people who have large sums of, like, available cash tend to do better than people who have to borrow it all. And, you know, eventually that's the end game for me. Uh, I know I need about $3 million in actual liquid cash to run a really successful house flipping, meaning I'll be able to fire my lenders eventually. Not that I don't love them, and I'm obviously been giving them business for many years, but eventually the most optimal way of running my flipping business would be to be all cash. And I know Dave Ramsey he says you shouldn't flip a house until you have all cash, Um, I wouldn't say don't get started because of it. Just get smart about how you do it. But eventually, I want to be very much Dave Ramsey style because uh, I have students that make more than me per house because they're all cash.
0: When you mentioned lenders, it reminded me of a song called Branded Men by Merle Haggard. And I'm going to share with you some of the lyrics. It says, I'd like to hold my head up and be proud of who I am, but they won't let my secret go untold. I paid the debt I owed them, but they're still not satisfied. Now I'm a branded man out in the cold. When they let me out of prison, I held my head up high, determined I would rise above the shame. But no matter where I'm living, the black mark follows me. I'm branded with a number on my name. I bring that up because it's a song that might be even more appropriate in the age of Google. I would imagine it's hard for you to escape your past if somebody were to do research on you. Have you ever come across a problem Due to the time you spent in prison, where you were unable to get money from lenders?
1: I've had one guy who was actually a lender now, who's a little bit weird. Even though I'd done I mean, three, four hundred flips at the time, he just did like a deal or two with me until I created track record. But after he got to know me personally and really seen like high how high character I was, and and I delivered on many loans, he's now like opened the floodgates and is a great lender. So I imagine I have not had that issue, and I think probably because I don't hide the fact, you know, I actually embrace it. And I'm not hiding that fact. At some level, probably makes me more authentic. And, you know, because I think a lot of people, I was ashamed of it. And I did hide it the first few years I was out. And then eventually I owned it and realized, like, it's part of who I am. And if you, you know, like, if you don't like that, then lend to someone else. There's a lot of lenders out there. I'll find someone who doesn't care. I usually tell people and I'm surprised at how little they care about it. You know, because we would think that people would brand you and would think of you as that. But no one sees me that way. They're actually surprised to hear it. They're like, oh, man, I would never guess. But. It makes a lot of sense. You know, that's part of your journey.
0: With regard to Google, it probably helps that your name
1: is common. Yeah, right? yeah a, lot of, a lot of people with criminal records named Michael Green, by the way.
0: Yeah, they'll know if it's you or not. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So how do you think your life would be different if you hadn't gone to prison?
1: I actually think I probably still be living that life because it took getting my butt kicked as far as like just you know a big major shake up and change in my life. They they really push me and give me the 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 worth of all to really be able to follow through with being a good person and changing myself. That wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been in prison. I think if I would only went for a year, I probably would have went back to the life. So uh, I don't know, man. I I probably be dead or in prison right now. I'm pretty confident of it.
0: Michael, thank you for your candor and your insights. I would imagine that this is going to be one of the best conversations that I've had this year. So thank you for coming on the Man Overseas podcast, buddy.
1: No, I appreciate it. And thank you for all the great feedback and everything.
0: How can people connect with you to learn more about you and your coaching services and your podcast?
1: I mean, most simplest ways. Just go to uh, theflipfactor.net as our website. And if you go on iTunes or any of the other services out there, the Flip Factor podcast is the name of the podcast. And, uh, you know, a lot of free stuff we give just to help out and give back. And coaching business for me is nonprofit. I actually charge money, but I don't take a check from it. So that's been my big way of giving back. I make all my money actually flipping houses. So if you want to reach out, you can also email me at mike at the net. They all match, man. That took some time to think that through.
0: <laughs> very good. I've listened to a few of your podcasts. You have a great approach, a very conversational style that I admire, and I enjoy listening to it. So listeners, check it out. Before I go, I want to thank Brin William, Joseph Wells, who contributed a question, Vincent Barr, Gary Applegate. Each of them contributed, and I appreciate it. So thank you. I'm grateful to you for listening. You took time out of your day, and I can't tell you how much that means to me. So thank you. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.